0: SECTION 1 OF FIVE YEARS OF MY LIFE, 1894-1899. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY SUE ANDERSON. FIVE YEARS OF MY LIFE, 1894-1899. BY ALFRED Dreyfus translated from the French. Section 1, consisting of three parts, A Sketch of My Life, The Arrest, and The First Court-Martial of 1894. Part 1, A Sketch of My Life. I was born at Malou's in Alsace, October 9, 1859. My childhood passed happily amid the gentle influences of mother and sister's a kind father devoted to his children, and the companionship of older brothers. My first sorrow was the Franco-Prussian War. It has never faded from my memory. When peace was concluded, my father chose the French nationality, and we had to leave Alsace. I went to Paris to continue my studies. In 1878 I was received at the École Polytechnique, which in the usual order of things— I left in 1880 to enter as cadet of artillery, the École d'application of Fontainebleau, where I spent the regulation two years. After graduating, on the 1st of October, 1882, I was breveted lieutenant in the 31st Regiment of Artillery in the garrison at Limoges. At the end of the year, 1883, I was transferred to the Horse Batteries, of the first independent cavalry division at Paris, on the twelfth of September, eighteen eighty-nine, I received my commission of captain in the twenty-first regiment of artillery, and was appointed on special service at the Ecole Centrale de Pyrotechnie Militaire at Bourges. It was in the course of the following winter that I became engaged to Mademoiselle Lucy ADAMAR, my devoted and heroic wife. During my engagement, I prepared myself for the École Supérieure de Guerre School for Staff Officers, where I was received the 20th of April, 1890. The next day, April 21st, I was married. I left the École Supérieure de Guerre in 1892 with the degree Very Good and the brevet of Staff Officer. My rank number on leaving the École entitled me to be detailed as Stagiaire probationer on the General Staff of the Army. I took service in the Second Bureau of the General Staff, the Intelligence Bureau, on the 1st of January, 1893. A brilliant and easy career was open to me. The future appeared under the most promising auspices. After my day's work, I found rest and delight at home. Every manifestation of the human mind was of profound interest to me, I found pleasure in reading aloud during the long evenings passed at my wife's side. We were perfectly happy, and our first child, a boy, brightened our home. I had no material cares, and the same deep affection united me to the family of my wife as to the members of my own family. Everything in life seemed to smile on me. End of Part 1 Part 2 The Arrest the year eighteen ninety three passed without incidents. My daughter Jean came to shed a new ray of sunshine in our home. The year eighteen ninety four was to be the last of my service in the second bureau of the general staff of the army. During the last quarter of the year, I was named for the regulation term of service in an infantry regiment stationed in Paris. I began my term on the first of October. Saturday, the thirteenth of October, eighteen ninety four, I received a service note directing me to go the following Monday at nine o'clock in the morning to the Ministry of War for the general inspection. It was expressly stated that I should be in tenue bourgeois, civilian dress. The hours seemed to me very early for the general inspection, which is usually passed late in the day. The mention of civilian dress surprised me as well. Still, after making these remarks while reading the note, I soon forgot them as the matter appeared unimportant as was our custom my wife and i dined on sunday evening with her parents we came away gay and light-hearted as we always did after these family gatherings on monday morning i left my family my son pierre who was then three and a half years old and was accustomed to accompany me to the door when i went out came with me that morning as usual that was one of my keenest remembrances through all my misfortunes very often in my nights of sorrow and despair i lived over the moment when i held my child in my arms for the last time in this recollection i always found renewed strength of purpose the morning was bright and cool the rising sun driving away the thin mist everything foretold a beautiful day As I was a little ahead of time, I walked back and forth before the ministry building for a few minutes, then went upstairs. On entering the office, I was received by Commandant Picard, who seemed to be waiting for me, and who took me at once into his room. I was somewhat surprised at finding none of my comrades, as officers are always called in groups to the general inspection. After a few minutes of commonplace conversation, COMMANDANT PICARD CONDUCTED ME TO THE PRIVATE OFFICE OF THE CHIEF OF GENERAL STAFF. I WAS GREATLY AMAZED TO FIND MYSELF RECEIVED NOT BY THE CHIEF OF GENERAL STAFF, BUT BY COMMANDANT DU PATI Clem, WHO WAS IN UNIFORM. THREE PERSONS IN CIVILIAN DRESS WHO WERE UTTERLY UNKNOWN TO ME WERE ALSO THERE. THESE THREE PERSONS WERE Monsieur Cochefer, CHEF DE LA SUROTE, THE HEAD OF THE SECRET POLICE, his secretary, and the keeper of the records, M. Gréblard. Commandant du Clem, came directly toward me, and, said in a choking voice, The general is coming. While waiting I have a letter to write, and as my finger is sore, will you write it for me? Strange as the request was, under the circumstances, I at once complied. I sat down at a little table, while Commandant Dupaty placed himself at my side, and, very near me, following my hand with his eye after first requiring me to fill up an inspection form he dictated to me a letter of which certain passages recalled the accusing letter that i knew afterward and which was called the in the course of his dictation the commandant interrupted me sharply saying you tremble i was not trembling at the court-martial of eighteen ninety four he explained his brusque interruption by saying that he had perceived I was not trembling under the dictation, believing therefore that he had to do with one who was simulating. He had tried in this way to shake my assurance. This vehement remark surprised me greatly, as did the hostile attitude of Commandant Dupati. But, as all suspicion was far from my mind, I thought only that he was displeased at my writing it badly, my fingers were cold, for the temperature outside was chilly, and I had been only a few minutes in the warm room. So I answered, my fingers are cold. As I continued writing without any sign of perturbation, Commandant Paty tried a new interruption and said violently, pay attention, it is a grave matter. Whatever may have been my surprise at a procedure as rude as it was uncommon, I said nothing, and simply applied myself to writing more carefully. Thereupon, Commandant Dupaty, as he explained to the court-martial of 1894, concluded that, my self-possession being unshakable, it was useless to push the experiment further. The scene of the dictation had been prepared in every detail, but it had not answered the expectations of those who had arranged it. As soon as the dictation was over, Commandant du arose, and, placing his hand on my shoulder, cried out in a loud voice, In the name of the law, I arrest you. You are accused of the crime of high treason. A thunderbolt falling at my feet would not have produced in me a more violent emotion. I blurted out disconnected sentences, protesting against so infamous an accusation, which nothing in my life could have given rise to. Next, Monsieur Cochefer and his secretary threw themselves on me and searched me. I did not offer the slightest resistance, but cried to them, Take my keys, open everything in my house. I am innocent. Then I added, Show me at least the proofs of the infamous act you pretend I have committed. They answered that the accusations were overwhelming, but refused to state what they were or who had made them. I was then taken to the military prison on the Rue de cherche by Commandant Henri, accompanied by one of the detectives. On the way, Commandant Henri, who knew perfectly well what had passed, for he was hidden behind a curtain during the whole scene, asked me of what I was accused. My reply was made the substance of a report by Commandant Henri, a report whose falsity was evident from the very questioning to which i had been subjected and which i was again to undergo in a few days on my arrival in the prison i was incarcerated in a cell whose solitary grated window looked on the convict's yard i was placed in the strictest solitary confinement and all communication with my people was forbidden me i had at my disposal neither paper pen and ink nor pencil during the first days, I was subjected to the regime of the convicts, but this illegal measure was afterwards done away with. The men who brought me my food were always accompanied by the sergeant on guard and the chief guard, who had the only key of my cell constantly in his possession. To speak to me was absolutely forbidden to anyone but the director of the prison. When I found myself in that gloomy cell, still under the terrific influence of the scene I had just gone through, and of the monstrous accusation brought against me, when I thought of all those whom I had left at home but a few hours before in the fullness of happiness, I fell into a state of fearful excitement and raved from grief. I walked back and forth in the narrow space, knocking my head against the walls. Commandant Forcinetti, director of the prison— Came to see me, accompanied by the chief guard, and calmed me for a little while. I am happy to be able to give here expression to my deep gratitude to commandant Forcinetti, who found means to unite with his strict duty as a soldier the highest sentiments of humanity. During the seventeen days which followed, I was subjected to frequent cross-examination by commandant du who acted as officer of judicial police. He always came in very late in the evening accompanied by greble who was acting as his clerk he dictated to me bits of sentences taken from the incriminating letter or passed rapidly under my eyes in the light words or fragments of words taken from the same letter asking me whether or not i recognized the handwriting besides all that has been recorded of these examinations he made all sorts of veiled mysterious allusions to facts unknown to me, and would finally go away theatrically, leaving my brain bewildered by the tangle of insoluble riddles. During all this time I was ignorant of the basis of the accusation, and in spite of most urgent demands I could obtain no light on the monstrous charge brought against me. I was fighting the empty air. That my brain did not give way during these endless days and nights was not the fault of Commandant Dupati. I had neither paper nor ink with which to fix my ideas. I was every moment turning over in my head fragments of sentences which I had drawn from him and which only led me further astray. But no matter what my tortures may have been, my conscience was awake and unerringly dictated my duty to me. "'If you die,' it said to me, "'they will believe you guilty.' Whatever happens, you must live to cry aloud your innocence in the face of the world. It was only on the fifteenth day after my arrest that Commandant Dupati showed me a photograph of the accusing letter since called the Beaudureau. I did not write this letter, nor was I in any way responsible for it. End of Part 2 Part 3 the first court-martial of 1894. When my examination by Commandant Paty had been closed, the order was given by General Mercier, Minister of War, to open a regular instruction, a general investigation, chiefly conducted by the secret military police of my past life. My conduct, however, was beyond reproach. There was nothing in my life, actions, or relations on which to base any ignoble suspicion. On the 3rd of November, General Sassier, military governor of Paris, signed the order for an official preliminary investigation of the case for the court. This preliminary investigation was entrusted to Commandant d'Ormècheville, rapporteur or examining judge of the First Court martial of Paris. He was unable to bring an exact charge his report was a tissue of allusions and lying insinuations justice was done to it even by the members of the court-martial of eighteen ninety four for at the last session the commissaire du gouvernement, judge advocate wound up his speech for the prosecution by acknowledging that there remained no charge of any kind everything had disappeared except the bordereau the prefecture of police having made investigations concerning my private life handed in an official report that was favorable in every respect. The Detective Guigny, who was attached to the information service of the Ministry of War, produced on the other side an anonymous report made up exclusively of calumnious stories. Only his last report was produced at the trial of 1894. The official report of the Prefecture of Police, which had been entrusted to Henri, had disappeared. The magistrates of the Supreme Court found the minutes of it in the records of the prefecture and made the truth known in 1899. After seven weeks of the investigation, during which I remained as before in the strictest solitary confinement, the judge advocate, Commandant Brizet, moved on the 3rd of December 1894 for an indictment the presumption being sufficiently established. These presumptions were based on the contradictory reports of the handwriting experts, two of whom, M. Gobert, expert of the Bank of France, and M. Peltier, pronounced in my favor. The other two, M. tessonneur and Charouvet, decided against me, while admitting the numerous points of dissimilarity between the handwriting of the Beaudureau and my own. M. Bertillon, who was not an expert, pronounced against me on the ground of pretended scientific reasons. Everyone knows that at the trial of Rennes in 1899, Monsieur Charvet publicly and with solemnity acknowledged his error. On the 4th of December 1894, General Saussier, military governor of Paris, signed the order for the trial. I was then put in communication with Maitre Demange, whose admirable devotion remained unchanged to the end. All this time they refused me the right of seeing my wife. On the 5th of December, I at last received permission to write her an open letter. Tuesday, December 5th, 1894. My dear Lucy, at last I can send you word. I have just been told that my trial is set for the 19th of this month. I am denied the right to see you. I will not tell you all that I have suffered. There are not in the world words strong enough to give expression to it. Do you remember when I used to tell you how happy we were? Everything in life smiled on us. Then, of a sudden, came a thunderbolt which left my brain reeling. To be accused of the most monstrous crime that a soldier can commit even today i feel that i must be the victim of some frightful nightmare but i trust in god's justice in the end truth must prevail my conscience does not reproach me i have always done my duty never have i turned from it crushed down in this somber cell alone with my reeling brain i have had moments when i have been beside myself but even then my conscience was on guard Hold up thy head, it said to me. Look the world in the face. Strong in thy consciousness of right. Rise up. Go straight on. This trial is frightfully bitter, but it must be endured. I embrace you a thousand times, as I love you, as I adore you, my darling Lucy. A thousand kisses to the children. I dare not say more about them to you. The tears come into my eyes when I think of them. Alfred Alfred THE DAY BEFORE THE TRIAL OPENED I WROTE HER THE FOLLOWING LETTER WHICH EXPRESSES THE ENTIRE CONFIDENCE I HAD IN THE LOYALTY AND CONSCIENTIOUSNESS OF THE JUDGES Quote, I AM COME AT LAST TO THE END OF MY SUFFERINGS TOMORROW I SHALL APPEAR BEFORE MY JUDGES MY HEAD HIGH MY SOUL TRANQUIL I AM READY TO APPEAR BEFORE SOLDIERS AS A SOLDIER WHO HAS NOTHING WITH WHICH TO REPROACH HIMSELF THEY WILL SEE IN MY FACE THEY WILL READ IN MY SOUL they will know that I am innocent, as all will know who know me. The trial I have undergone, terrible as it has been, has purified my soul. I shall return to you better than I was before. I want to consecrate to you, to my children, to our dear families, all that remains of life to me. Devoted to my country, to which I have consecrated all my strength, all my intellect, I have nothing to fear." Sleep quietly then, my darling, and do not give way to any apprehension. Think only of our joy when we are once more in each other's arms. Alfred. On the nineteenth of December, eighteen ninety four, began the trial, which, in spite of the strong protests of my lawyer, took place behind closed doors. I ardently desired that sitting should be public in order that my innocence might shine forth in the full light of day. When I was brought into the courtroom accompanied by a lieutenant of the Republican Guard, I saw hardly anything and understood nothing. Unmindful of all that was passing around me, my mind was completely taken up with the frightful nightmare which had been weighing on me for so many long weeks, with that monstrous accusation of treason, the inane emptiness of which I was to prove. My only conscious impression was that on the platform at the end of the room were the members of the court-martial, officers like myself, comrades before whom I was at last to be able to make plain my innocence. Behind them, against the wall, stood the substitute judges and Commandant Picard, who represented the Minister of War. Monsieur Lepine, Prefect of Police, was there also. And, facing the judges on the opposite side of the room from me, sat Commandant Brise, judge-advocate, and the clerk, Valcal After taking a seat in front of my counsel, Maitre Demange, I looked at my judges. They were impassive. Maitre Demange's fight to obtain from the court a public hearing, the violent interruptions of the president of the court-martial, the clearing of the courtroom, all these first incidents of the trial never turned my mind from the sole aim to which it was directed. I wanted to be brought face to face with my accusers i was on fire with impatience to defend my honor and destroy the wretched arguments of an infamous accusation i heard the false and hateful testimony of commandant du and the lies of commandant henri in regard to the conversation we had had on the way from the ministry of war to the cherche midi prison on the day of my arrest I energetically, though calmly, refuted their accusations. But when the latter returned a second time to the witness stand, when he said that he knew from a most honorable personage that an officer of the second bureau was a traitor, I arose in indignation and passionately demanded that the person whose language he was quoting should be made to appear in court. Thereupon, striking his breast with a theatrical gesture, Henri added, when an officer has such a secret in his head he does not confide it even to his cap then turning to me as to the traitor he said there he is notwithstanding my vehement protests i could obtain no explanation of his words and consequently i was powerless to show their utter falsity i heard the contradictory reports of the handwriting experts two testifying in my favour and the other two against me, at the same time bearing witness to the numerous points of difference between the handwriting of the Baudereau and my own, I attach no importance to the testimony of Bertillon for his so-called scientific mathematical demonstrations seemed to me the work of a crazy man. All charges were refuted during these sessions. no motive could be found to explain so abominable a crime in the fourth and last session the judge advocate abandoned all minor charges retaining for the accusation only the Baudereau. this document he waved aloft shouting nothing remains but the beaudereau but that is enough let the judges take up their magnifying glasses maître de in his eloquent speech for the defense refuted the reports of the experts showed all their contradictions and ended by asking how it was possible that such an accusation could have been built up without any motive having been produced. To me, acquittal seemed certain. I was found guilty. I learned four and a half years later that the good faith of the judges had been abused by the testimony of Henri, he who afterward became a forgerer, as well as by the communication in the courtroom of secret documents unknown to the accused and his counsel, documents of which some did not apply to him, while the rest were forgeries. The secret communication of these documents to the members of the court-martial in the council chamber was ordered by General Mercier. End of Part 3 End of Section 1